Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future. I'm Dan Rundy and I'm joined today by Dr. Bill Steiger, the former Chief of Staff at USAID. Prior to his roles at USAID, Dr. Steiger was successively Managing Director and Chief Program Officer at Pink Ribbon, Red Ribbon, and worked as a Senior Advisor at the Global Fund. He was also Special Assistant for International Affairs to the Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Bush 43 administration. Thanks for joining me today, Bill. Great to be with you, Dan. Thanks for having me. So could we talk about your career path and the circumstances that led you to your most recent role as Chief of Staff at USAID? Sure. And as we start, Dan, I want to acknowledge we're recording today on the day that former Vice President Walter Mondale passed away. And I think whatever you think of him as politics, he was a principal public servant and somebody America should be very proud of. My dad served with him in Congress. My dad was in the House and the former Vice President was a senator from Minnesota. And it's uh, one of those moments we mark that reflect upon uh, the democracy that we have in the United States, how strong it is, and the kind of leaders we get from both parties, at least that we have over many, many years. I'm going to miss Wandel too. Thanks for referencing that. He was a prince of a guy, and he was somebody that made a real positive mark on the country. I agree. Thanks for referencing that. And I bring that up in the context of your question, too, which is, how did I get where I am? I think it's because I come out of a family and a tradition that really valued public service. So my Dad was in the house. My mom was the head of a couple of independent regulatory commissions over the course of her career. And so that ethos of public service was something I grew up with. And uh, that's really been a guiding post in my life and my professional career. So every chance that I've had to be involved in public service at the state or the federal level, I've jumped at it. And I'm lucky enough to have had some wonderful mentors over my career who helped me get to where I am. Tommy Thompson, former governor from Wisconsin being probably the number one mentor that I've had. And he brought me to Madison. He brought me from Madison to Washington to work at HHS. And he's my connection to Mark Green, who was my boss at USAID. Governor Thompson was Mark Green's mentor in politics in the state, got him to run for the House and uh, helped him on his career afterwards. So I was lucky enough to be able to have a chance to interact with Mark Green over the years. Didn't know him that well, had never worked for him. But when President Trump nominated Mark as the administrator of USAID. Mark approached me about this role. That connection really goes back to my earliest days getting involved in public service when I worked with Governor Thompson, and he's the person who really put us together. So talk about your role as chief of staff at USAID. What did that entail? What were some of the biggest challenges that it presented? You were there at a very interesting and historic moment. Yes, it was a great time to be there. Three and a half years, really loved every minute of it, and I'm I'm proud of what we accomplished. My role was basically trying to keep the trains running on time. As we used to say in the agency, the major job was to protect the principal and protect the agency. And I think we did that pretty successfully. It helps to have a great boss like Mark Green, who knew how to stay out of trouble, who had a vision that was really, really clear and a direction to implement. And it helped that we were working in an agency that has tremendous bipartisan support. But there are a couple of big challenges. I'll touch on two if you'll allow me. And I I sent you some facts and figures that I hope we can share as slides with your audience for them to follow along. 
even though this is an audio podcast, they might be able to accompany it with some visuals. The first of the big challenges that the agency has had and will continue to have into the future is the relationship with Congress. It's not a relationship that I find particularly productive. Why? First of all, the money just doesn't work anymore. The way the appropriators have put together the bills in the last few years, there are more directives than there is funding to meet them. This puts the agency in a tremendous bind. So even if we look just at fiscal year 2020, which is the last one for which we have complete figures where the administration has put together a report, the 653A report, as they call it, required to fit the jigsaw puzzle of the appropriations together, there's a net decrease of $263 million across the three major accounts at USAID, Development Assistance, Economic Support Fund, and Assistance to Eastern and Central Europe. And that's because of a net decrease in the Economic Support Fund. So even if there were small increases in some of those component accounts, the ESF account went down. The net effect is that it went down. At the same time, however, directives from Congress went up more than $500 million in new sectors, particularly around climate change, but in other areas as well. That really starts to impinge upon the agency's ability to make smart, adaptive decisions in real time. And some of the figures that your audience will be able to see talks about how in 2020, the development assistance account is 94% earmarked now by sector. In total, the budget is more than 88% earmarked by sector. That is compounded by the continuing growth in directives by country. So the jigsaw puzzle three-dimensionally of sectoral earmarks or directives going up, more than $400 million in new country-level directives, means that the agency or the administration has very little discretion left about how to spend money where and how to react to new kinds of problems and challenges. That's the biggest problem on the appropriation side, a mismatch between the money that AID gets and the money that it needs because so much of it is directed by place and by sector in a way that makes flexibility very difficult. In addition, I think the agency is far too deferential to Congress in this matter. I would hope that with the Democratic Party controlling all the three parts of the system here, the House, the Senate, and the executive branch, that the executive branch could push back on this a little bit. I've always felt that aid is an agency corporately that is being held hostage by congressional staff, mostly, and that the agency has Stockholm Syndrome. It has fallen in love with its captors. And it's very difficult for the agency to push back on this increasingly restrictive budget process and the strings on the money. In addition to having all of those strings, Congress gets three or four or five chances to try and modify what the agency wants to do before the money is spent. The upshot of all of that is that the agency can't even begin to actually program its funds until months after the fiscal year starts. And with only two-year money for most of its accounts, that means that there's a mad rush to program money in the last part of each of the fiscal years. And the smart decisions aren't always made. The second big challenge, Dan, that's related to that first one around appropriations is the relationship with the Department of State. And I do hope that the new administration can try and get this right. This is a continual struggle, Republicans and Democrats, since the unfortunate creation of the Office of Foreign Assistance. And I have to say, having been in the Bush administration, the creation of F, as it's known, is probably one of the worst mistakes in foreign policy that we made. It has taken much of the discretion away from the USA administrator, taken away much of the administrator's authority, and slowed down almost every process without adding an awful lot of value. State is really prone to procrastination and delay. 
There's too little use of data and facts. It relies on emotion and belief. It lacks agility and flexibility and transparency as an institution. And it continues to debate decisions long after they're made. And without a unifying ethos, an understanding of what actually everybody at the State Department is supposed to do, it means that they focus through F on USAID as something that they can control. So I've found it very difficult dealing with F, regardless of career or political leadership, even though Jim Richardson is a dear friend and he was probably the best head of F we could ever hope for. It was still a really, really difficult job for him and for us because essentially the regional bureaus of the State Department have tried over time to replicate what aid does by creating large accounts at the regional level to spend in ways that are not always the best, the most thought through. And it, again, combined with that appropriation, lack of appropriations flexibility, means at the end of all of this process, having the congressional restrictions and then the restrictions that F places on us because of the demands of mostly ambassadors in the field, it means that aid has very little flexibility and adaptability to respond to new events. So if you were to say me to sum up, okay, so that sounds great. Okay, sure. What does that mean in practical terms? Let's give you one example of how difficult it is for in this environment created by Congress, abetted by the State Department for USAID to react appropriately, smartly, and flexibly. It was the opening in Sudan over the past couple of years. So particularly in the last year when Sudan agreed to abide by the Abraham Accords and recognize Israel as part of that process. Yes, there was a negotiation to try and do some different things with the Sudanese. Finding funds to be able to do something new in Sudan at that moment in time was incredibly difficult, despite goodwill from lots of people. And it's the consequence of those processes and directives and systems that I've described. It's really sobering. We did a big report on this issue of directives. I mean, so in bottom line is we've got a dysfunctional relationship with Congress that needs to be fixed. We've got a contentious and complicated relationship with the State Department made worse by having the F Bureau at the State Department. I and mean, if you had the aid administrator dual hatted, like it's several times in the Bush administration, Randy Tobias and Henry F. were dual hatted, that may manage that could help manage some of it. It's unfortunate that I'm hoping that Samantha, maybe Samantha Power will get dual hatted, but I'm, I suspect that's not the case. I bet the deal was you can have the NSC slot, but you don't get the F slot. I'm betting that's what the trade was. We just did a paper with Rodney Bent and Mike Casella, two longstanding experts on foreign assistance budgeting, who spent time at OMB, has spent time at AID, spent time at state. We're at looking at this exact issue of these directives and my view is if we're in a world of great power competition, that a lot of this started post-Cold War because we needed to cut a Faustian bargain with our interest group partners to finance foreign aid. But what has happened is, is it's had, in essence, I think, interest group capture of the budget. And so my view is, is that we were able to have a higher degree of flexibility in the Cold War because we needed to win the Cold War. If we believe that there's great power competition, we need to win great power competition and soft power is going to be a big part of it. Then we're going to have to go back to the drawing board on this exact issue. So we did this paper saying this is totally broken. It would seem to me this would be an important thing for the Biden administration to take on. It may be require a Republican administration, to be honest, to take this on, Bill, because it seems to me historically a lot of the significant reforms in foreign aid have happened in Republican administrations. If I think of the Bush administration or Reagan or Nixon, Bush 41, 
Bush 43, major changes have happened in those. There have been other things, but I would argue that probably the most significant ones have happened in Republican administration. So it may be that it requires another administration to do this. I worry that there may be, for a variety of reasons, including that, you know, that it just may be just one thing they can't take on. But I think just dealing with COVID or dealing with opportunities like Sudan, like you've said, if we can't answer the mail and then they go off with China or Russia, is that a win for us? It's not a win for us. So we've got to do a better job. I 100% agree with everything you're saying here in terms of the challenges. These are profound challenges and we'll find a way to get this attached to our, our podcast so that people can click on it and take a look at the slides that you've provided. It's really, really quite interesting. So those are the challenges. Talk about some of the happier things in the last 12 to 24 months that were wins for AID um, in terms of some of the things that you're proud of that were, were positives. Great. Thanks. And I agree with you too, Dan. I, I don't think that Ambassador Power is going to get the F job, unfortunately, and this might be for another four or eight years for somebody else who follows us to fight through. But somebody's got to solve the problem because every time that we heard from people in the field about an opportunity to counter the Chinese, it became very difficult to do that in real time. And even the way that they've set up some of these funds at the State Department to counter the Chinese, they're basically just taking random proposals from the field. And that might be great today, but where's the strategy here? Where is the grand strategy? There is none. So that's a longer conversation, but absolutely agree with you on that. So what did we do right? I hope we could talk for a few minutes in a minute about the entire structural transformation. But I wanted to add, in addition to that, three quick points that maybe your listeners don't know a lot about that to me reflect the change in culture that we we're trying to bring to USAID beneath the structure and things that I very much hope the new administration will carry on. One is our risk appetite statement. What is that? Well, it's part of an overall risk management process, but for the first time in the federal government, aid put its risk appetite statement on the web publicly to indicate our risk tolerance for various sorts of things. Zero tolerance for corruption and waste, but a very high tolerance for risk in programmatic design and implementation. It's the first time the agency's ever said that. What does that mean in, in plain English? We're okay with failure was the signal we were trying to send to our implementers and to potential organizations and to our who wanted to work with us and our staff that we'd like to innovate, we'd like to take risk, we'd like to do things differently. And we were willing to put that out publicly as a way to try and shape the kind of programs that our staff were gonna be designing in the field. A second thing that's related to that, I'm very proud of is our acquisition and assistance strategy. For the first time, the agency put something on paper about what the goals and objectives were for the agency in its core business, which is grants and contracts, right? A lot of people think that aid is many things, including staff. They think it's a think tank. They think it's an academic institution. They think it's a charity. No, it's a grant-making and contract-making agency. That's what it does day in, day out. This, to me, is one of the most important pieces of the transformation that we laid out an expectation that we were going to do new things take some old procedures we'd forgotten about, change some of our policies, adapt some things that other agencies have done very successfully, and work especially with new partners. So part of that was also what we call the New Partnerships Initiative. You'll remember a little piece of that from the Bush administration that was the New Partners Initiative focused on PEPFAR. We took that concept of trying to focus some funding on smaller groups who've never been part of our system before or only at a subrecipient level or small level and blow it up and move it beyond just HIV or health 
into other sectors. I think we've started something that could be very, very successful and that the Democrats should really support, which is localizing our assistance. Let's put it in the hands of the people who really need to sustain these changes over time in particular, as well as American organizations that have never been able to get into the aid network and are part of the large industrial complex that we've created in development and humanitarian assistance. And finally, just a word about the agency's digital strategy, something that came out in the last year or so of Mark Green's tenure at the agency, signals a really important direction for USAID and for development assistance in general around technological innovation, digitizing our own processes at the agency, from hiring to grant making to auditing, but then also looking very seriously at where USAID can play a key role in both disseminating digital technologies in health, in farming, in teaching, in lots of fields, and guarding against the abuses of that digital technology that we're seeing from the surveillance state authoritarian model that's being promoted by the Chinese. COVID has been an enormous disruptor and an accelerator and perhaps opportunity provider. You know a lot about the global health space given your previous lives and your life at AID. Talk about COVID and what does it mean for the future global development? A lot of people are focused rightly on the health impact and consequences of COVID. But as the administration was right to do in its original strategic planning of a year ago, the ripple effects of those health impacts will be far greater than just on hospitals, on clinics, on child mortality or overall mortality rates. The economic impacts, the social impacts, the impacts on governance are profound. I think the trends that AID and the larger Western world of development are going to have to watch out very carefully against are things like the expansion of the surveillance state under the guise of public health and the opportunism that we're seeing where governments are using the pandemic as an excuse to crack down on civil liberties, on freedom of expression, on the political opposition. That's a major trend over the past two years that could become permanent if we're not careful, especially if people believe or can use as a pretext the existence of the virus for a longer time as it mutates as a way to continue those practices. The other trend that I think is very important to watch out for is the expansion of humanitarian assistance into lots of places where we haven't been giving humanitarian assistance traditionally and the distortionary effect that that can have. USAID and other donors have to come to a better way of promoting coherence and consistency between their humanitarian investments and their longer-term investments in development, whether that's in health, a lot of what we've been doing around COVID is in health, or in things like job creation, food support, agriculture. There is a risk that we are going to perpetuate dependency in some places with our humanitarian assistance around COVID in ways that will replicate some of the patterns that have been very pernicious in some of the long-term chronic crisis situations where we've been giving humanitarian assistance for a couple of decades now. The Syrias, the Burma, Bangladesh, which is about a decade old, the South Sudan, which is now more than a decade old. There's a moral hazard in humanitarian assistance and the way we do it in the West that we do not want to recognize. It is very possible, unfortunately, that we are propping up very bad regimes through humanitarian assistance and funding very bad actors in places like South Sudan. We are funding the apartheid regime of the Burmese inside Burma with our humanitarian aid, and no one wants to take a look at that. Our humanitarian instincts are we need to help where people need help, but the unintended secondary consequences of that help need a real examination 
And very few people are willing to say that sort of thing publicly, but it's a problem. And the vast amount of humanitarian assistance and other assistance coming under the guise of COVID could make things worse if we're not careful about it. Wow, that is sobering. That gets my attention. And I think that's something that we need to be looked at. You know a lot about the global health space. You saw I put out an article on the Hill a couple of weeks ago that there's going to be an election to reelect or change leaders at the, as the helm of the WHO. This is in the context of how the WHO has handled COVID and how to manage this. It's also in the context of some geopolitical challenges and complexities involving specifically the country of Ethiopia, where the current director general, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, he's expected to stand for re-election a year from next May, in May of 2022. The window for new candidates is starting this month in April. We're in talking in April 2021 and closes sometime in September. So there's a lot of complexity in all that. Could you talk a little bit about how you see the WHO election over the next year playing out? Because I think it's quite complicated and, and there's a number of different dimensions to it. It's very complicated. And your article put it really nicely. It starts with whether the director general's own home government will back him for a second term. I think that's an open question and a fascinating one. I can't predict all of the ins and outs of Ethiopian politics in that regard, but it would be highly unusual if the host government of the director general didn't back him. Whether it does or not, though, I do find it likely that he will have opposition. And he probably should have opposition. I think all of these races for the heads of UN agencies should be contested, should always force the incumbent to justify a second term. Where that opposition might come from, unclear. What is clear, though, is that the Chinese government is backing Tedros and believes that it has won a friend in him in Geneva. And that record of the WHO's performance at the beginning of the pandemic and since will be the main basis of the election. That will be the issues on which the election is contested. And I think the record of the WHO staff and the institution as a whole is mixed. I'm profoundly skeptical of what has come out of the WHO, the latest mission to China. I don't think the Chinese were transparent in what they showed or gave to the team. I don't think we have full and complete data. And a couple of the members of the team said that. It really is an outrage that we would allow that government to control an international mission in this way, both physically and in terms of access to data. The lack of transparency will, unfortunately, come back to haunt Tedros's campaign and his legacy. He's somebody you and I have known for a long time. He's a good and decent man. He was a good minister of health in Ethiopia. He's in a very difficult position in Geneva. But the WHO's own subservient relationship to China is overshadowing all of the good that it might be doing until the WHO helps the Chinese come clean. It's been my contention that the Chinese violated the international health regulations from the get-go. They didn't report in a timely way. They didn't report fully. They were denying human-to-human transmission far after it was occurring. And they ought to be held to account for that. I think the Biden administration is right. And I've been very pleased about what the Secretary of State has said on this issue and others in the administration. We have to hold the Chinese accountable. At the same time, we also have to figure out whether the WHO is really positioned well enough with the IHRs and other things to react when an authoritarian government refuses to comply. My contention, having been in those negotiations, is that the IHRs do allow the director general to call out a government, however politically difficult that might be, and to rely on third-party sources, including, for example, from the Taiwanese, who were reporting that things were going on, 
And the WHO chose not to use that information for the basis of a recommendation. If it's a contested campaign, this will be the issue of the campaign. And even if it's not a contested campaign, it is something the director general and the organization are going to have to deal with for a long, long time. Bill, this has been fantastic. This is really sobering. I really think you've raised a number of the critical central issues facing us in global development. These issues have got to be addressed as some of the structural challenges. I'm hoping that the Biden administration will take this on. I'm really glad you've taken time to be with us today. I think you're really an important voice. And so I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm expecting to spend a lot of time with you over the next couple of years working with you on these issues. And I'm just a big fan of yours. And thanks for your service, Bill. It's really great talking to you today. And I really appreciate it. And um, I hope to see you soon. I got my first vaccination this weekend, and I hope to get the next one soon. And I hope to see you in person very shortly after that. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Been a great pleasure. I'm getting my second dose tomorrow. Everybody listening, go get yours, and I'll talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 